Under new laws the federal government passed, as of now, if you are pulled over, a police officer can demand a breath sample even if there is no suspicion that you are impaired. And if you refuse to give that breath sample, well, that could lead to you having a criminal record. And the laws are being questioned by many. And in no way are people saying that impaired drivers should be allowed on the streets. But there certainly are questions being asked about this law and whether or not it goes against parts of our Constitution. Uh, Joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Kyla Lee, a lawyer with Acumen Law in Vancouver. Kyla, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, It's only been a few days. Have you been approached by anybody who's been uh, forced to give a breath sample and uh, for for no reason without suspicion? I've been uh, approached by people who say that they've been forced to do so. Um, Whether or not that's the case from the officer's perspective, we'll have to find out when we get the police reports. So we have some sort of preliminary claims of people being affected by this law that we're going to have to delve into at this point. Because you did say that that you would likely be mounting a challenge. Would it it, uh, depend, though, on people contacting you? How would you do that? Yes, somebody's going to have to contact me who's been affected by the law, and we're going to have to have the right set of facts. So somebody who didn't have any indicia of having been impaired by alcohol, and the police nevertheless required them to blow and then charged them with either refusal or um, impaired driving or gave them a 90-day roadside prohibition. Uh, People have been contacting me just because we've been talking about this on the radio, and and a couple of people contacted and said they didn't see a huge difference in this, in that they personally had been in situations in the past past uh, where they hadn't been drinking, but for whatever reason, the officer said, well, I smell alcohol or I have a suspicion and and ordered a breast sample that way. Uh, Their argument was that that it doesn't really change much and that officers could do that in the past. Is Is that true? It's not true. It it changes huge aspects of how police conduct impaired driving investigations. Prior to this law coming into force, they had to have a reasonable suspicion that people had alcohol in their body. So they either had to smell alcohol, and that may be that they believed they smell alcohol and were mistaken about it, or get an admission of consumption or have some other clues that would lead them to believe somebody had alcohol in their body, like they saw the car leaving the parking lot of a bar at closing time and there was an odor in the vehicle and the person had red glossy eyes, you know, combination of factors like that. Um, But it still had to be considered reasonable to believe there was alcohol in the person's body before demanding the sample. And now it it can be anybody. You can be pulled over at 9 o'clock in the morning on your way to the bank from your office and be asked to blow. Uh, and there seems to be a bit of confusion about the, the pulling over aspect. Is it? Can you explain a bit what it means when it, it's still somebody has to be lawfully pulled over? We're not going to be in a situation, are we, where police are just randomly pulling people people over? Well, yes and no, uh, in the sense that the stop does have to be lawful, and so the police do have to have a reason to pull you over. But the Supreme Court of Canada has ruled, and every province in this country has legislation that says that police can pull you over at any time to check for sobriety, licensing, fitness to drive, and that you have valid insurance. So as long as they articulate that that's the reason for the traffic stop, they can effectively stop anybody at random. Uh, So it wouldn't even be that you have to be, say, you swerving or doing something. It could it could be an officer as simple as saying, oh, I, I wanted to check to make sure you had valid insurance. 
Exactly. Or I wanted to stop you to make sure you were wearing your seatbelt, or I was stopping you because I wanted to check your sobriety, even though there's no reason to believe that sobriety is an issue in the person's driving. And because the police have such broad authority to do that, it opens it up to the potential for abuse. And, and you know, we've seen the random stops on street checks become a huge issue um, with racial profiling. And I have grave concerns that that's now going to be something that is going to be happening with breath testing in this country. Uh, one of the other parts of this that isn't getting as much attention, um, because we are focusing, I think, on the, the breath samples and the the being told to, to hand that over, even if there's no suspicion. Uh, talk a bit as well, the, the blood alcohol content, it almost seems as though we're, we're making the police officers chemists, or we're relying on chemists to go back with this, this formula of somebody that if they take a, a, a blood or breath sample, say 10 hours after somebody was pulled over. Yes, uh, uh, they've written into the criminal code now a provision that allows the court, without hearing any expert evidence and without knowing anything about how somebody consumed alcohol or when they started or stopped drinking, uh, the ability to assume based on a blood alcohol reading of at least 20 milligrams of alcohol and 100 milliliters of blood, that uh, each hour that passed from the time that you were driving, you eliminated 10 milligrams of alcohol. So if you had 20 and it was 10 hours earlier that you were driving, they could just add another 100 milligrams and you would be at 120. Doesn't that seem odd in that I would imagine, I get that that's the, the basic formula, but people must differ person to person, don't they? People do differ person to person. The average rate of elimination is between 10 and 20 milligrams of alcohol per hour. So 10 sort of presumes the um, the lowest, but there are people that eliminate lower, people who are, um, who are very infrequent drinkers. Um, and there's also differences in how you absorb and eliminate alcohol based on how you consumed it. So if you take a large dose of alcohol in a, a short time span, um, like if you, you know, chug a couple beers, then you're going to to have a different absorption and elimination pattern than you would if you drank in a normal social drinking situation. And even factors like stress can affect the rate that your stomach empties alcohol. So if you have an accident and you're very stressed out because there were injuries or, or you killed somebody, you know, naturally your reaction would be to stress about this. It will actually affect the way your body eliminates alcohol. So people who are facing the most serious impaired driving charges um, and who are more likely to have their samples taken a longer time later are going to be the most negatively affected by this law. It almost seems like if, if the police want to crack down on this, and again, nobody is is defending uh, drunk driving or getting behind the wheel when impaired, but it almost seems like the the new law is uh, brings in so many uh, different factors, different uh, equations, uh, different ways of working it out. It almost seems like the federal government. I mean, why not just make it zero tolerance and then not have to deal with any of this? I mean, that probably would have been easier for everybody in the justice system to enforce and understand. Uh, prosecutors that I've talked to since the law came into effect on Tuesday, uh, all of them, and, and you know, myself included, we're all sort of spinning our heads trying to figure out how this affects all of our cases going forward. They overhauled a system that's been in place for for 50 years in this country and did it at the busiest time of year for impaired driving cases. It, it, it was a very, I think, foolish decision and foolish timing for it.
Uh, I also got an email from a listener wanting to know, uh, under the new rules, does anything change as far as uh, you're pulled over, you're told to provide a breath sample, whether there was suspicion or not suspicion? If there is some alcohol in your system, if you are under the limit, does anything change? If you're under the limit, nothing changes um, in the federal law, except that the limit has been lowered. So it used to be over 80 um, milligrams of alcohol, so over 0.08, and now it's at or over 0.08. So nobody used to be charged if, if you had 80 milligrams of alcohol in your blood, and now you would be charged if you had 80. All right. Uh, didn't it, wasn't it lower than that at some point? I seem to recall, wasn't it 0.05 at some point? Provincially, we have um, 0.05 as a, a, a limit for an administrative roadside prohibition, but that's not cross Canada. All right. It can get confusing, I would imagine, for people to, and again, not suggesting that, that no one's trying to work the system and, and drink just, just enough or drink as much as you can and still get behind the wheel, but it does seem like there are a lot of, a lot of moving parts now. There are. And, and I mean, obviously, nobody is trying to figure out how to game the system, but we also all just want to have normal lives. You know, people want to be able to go to dinner with their family and have a glass of wine with dinner and not worry that they're going to drive home and, and get, uh, get caught by police and end up spending the night in a jail cell. I tweeted out, and, and I, I get that it was it was an exaggeration on my part, but my point was looking at the Constitution and whether or not this, this goes past it. And I tweeted out, uh, what's next? Uh, if, if police can stop us now with no suspicion of anything, what's to stop a police officer from just randomly stopping people saying, empty your pockets, I want to know if, you, if there's any stolen merchandise in there. And, and people poked fun at it a bit. But my point was, is that not the road we're going down? I mean, we have a Constitution for a reason. And that is in the Constitution. And and should we not be defending that? We absolutely should be. And I, I read your tweet and I agreed with what you said, because, you know, as soon as we start to do this for impaired drivers and we target this group that is, you know, they're low hanging fruit. Nobody likes impaired drivers and nobody wants drunk drivers on the roads. Um, you know, even I who defend them, I don't want them out there. Um, and so it's easy to target them and say, oh, well, you know, it's only drunk drivers. We're going to take away their constitutional rights. But as soon as we become comfortable with that, then the government can use our comfort with that to allow more more intrusion into our personal liberties. Um, And so, you know, you had a really good point with your tweet that this is heading us down a path where we let the government intrude into our personal space and we open the door for more of that on the justification that it worked for drunk driving, so it's going to work for something else. What do you do next uh, in your practice as far as, uh, I suppose it's uh, waiting for people to contact you, or what do you do in that this is a field that you you work in? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing now is waiting for the right case to challenge these laws and um, also trying to figure out for all of the cases that I have where people have already had um, been charged who have trials coming up, how the new law affects their cases. Because some parts of the law apply to cases already in the system and some parts don't, and that hasn't been made clear, and that's going to require a lot of litigation. So, I mean, what we see going forward over the next five to ten years is a lot of court cases, a lot of court time spent figuring out what uh, is admissible and what's not admissible and what's constitutional and what's not constitutional about this law. Uh, One more question. Do you hear from police officers? Because uh, I've been hearing uh, on the news and in various interviews, I mean, not not surprising, many police officers and police chiefs are defending this, saying it's a good thing. Uh, Do you hear from them as far as what work you do and and in defense of the law? 
Um, yes, I hear from a lot of police officers, and I think there's a huge split in the policing community. Lots of officers are in favor of this. They say, you know what, it's great. It's going to get drunk drivers off the road. This is what we want. We want these tools. But there are also a large group of police officers who think that this is a violation of the Constitution, who aren't comfortable with this law, who feel like they're being you know, pressured into violating people's charter rights and being asked to enforce the law, and are not happy with the way that the government hasn't equipped them with the necessary training or tools to enforce all of the provisions that they've um, brought in at this point in time. All right. We will leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, Kyla Lee, always uh, good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk a little bit about climate change and how to really get people motivated and paying attention and making changes that will help the planet. And my next guest is a PhD student at the University of British Columbia. Abhishek Carr has written about this and joins us on the line this morning. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill, for having me. Uh, You wrote about this in quite a provocative headline and a very interesting piece. Basically, want citizens to care about climate change, write them a check. Uh, Talk a bit about that. What do you mean by that? Yes. You know, so in this climate change debate, we have two vocal sides. One who are pro-climate action, the activists, and who are anti-climate action, who are, you know, who, you know, who, who are pessimists who do not believe in climate science, but there's a vast majority of people, citizens, who simply are not bothered and not interested in this debate. They're just having their lives as it is going on. How do you bring them in this part of the debate? How do you make them interested? Because unless citizens are interested, the politicians who are not interested, you cannot really force them to talk, you know, to take action. And the recent climate talks, you know, it clearly suggests that there, that we are kind of facing two types of politicians. One with whom you can have good faith negotiations, people who understand climate, the gravity of this, of the dangers of climate change, but who have other concerns and skepticisms, which is fine. We can deal with that. But there are some who are simply not bothered about how do you get those people to bother and do you think it is that, that people aren't interested or is it also that for citizens, we, we go about our daily lives and we think perhaps that, well, what can we actually do when we watch uh, other countries that we've actually seen their emissions going up in the past year? Uh, we see politicians flying to the to the Paris talks. We see people that don't appear to be making any of these changes and people think, well, at a, at a very basic level, what's the point? Very right. You know, and also, you know, because this, and it's a very, very important point that it is not just an issue with, you know, which is happening in BC or, you know, in Alberta. It's a global problem. So, you know, so unless something happens in China or Russia or Indonesia, you know, you know countries which, you know, countries like Indonesia are kind of completely off the radar, but these are important places where, where a lot of emissions are happening. So what do you do about it? And, I, and what we are proposing, me and my professor, Dr. Hisham Zerifi of UBC, what we are basically telling is that we need to get citizens make aware about, about the issue of carbon tax. And for too long, we have kind of played more defensive on this issue of carbon tax, considering the tax is a bad one and people can get upset about it. But what if you turn around this argument on its head and talk about carbon dividend, 
exactly the same process but communicate to people that say you are going to spend x amount extra if this tax gets imposed but we are going to give you not just x amount plus y amount which is an add on amount which you are going to get and for many working class families that can be that can possibly be a winning argument you know and this is not something that you are talking out of the out of thin air clean prosperity recently pursued, uh, released a report uh, you know few couple of months back where they clearly showed you know that that if this federal backstopping gets into effect many households who earn less than 60000 80000 a year they are going to be net winners of around 100 100 200 if if this kind of uh, federal backstopping takes place so carbon tax is not bad economically we are, it's kind of made people are afraid of it politically because of this word tax but but i think i think you can get aggressive on this. Uh, so how would something like that work? And, and I'll use uh, an example that's that's taking place. And things have calmed down a little bit in France, but we've seen weeks of protests. We've seen the yellow vest protests, and that was all over uh, a fuel tax hike that uh, was cancelled. But when we see uh, a city, a country like that respond so negatively to a fuel tax, so how would you take a situation like that and flip it around and to try and get people to accept it? Yes, you know, the challenge of, of when you talk about taxes is the moment, immediately people think that I have to pay more. But what about telling people that you will be compensated for more? So when you are telling people that, that, that X amount is going to be, you have to pay extra, you also need to tell them that Y amount you will be getting back and that Y amount is greater than X. And unless these two numbers are simultaneously communicated to people, people are going to be upset. And you have to understand this. You know, as a reader of this article pointed out, there are many working class families who cannot afford to purchase a new car, who often purchase second-hand cars, which are not so fuel efficient. You know, so if you if you're putting carbon tax on them, you're actually penalizing them for their poverty, which is immoral and it is politically not correct. You know, so the best way out is when you tell people that, you know, that, that, that they have to pay extra for the carbon tax. You also inform people that we are going to give you and not only the return you the entire amount, but also provide you an amount Y, which is actually going to be your extra income. And, and, and this is something, you know, which is not out of thin air. We have seen calculations which show that, 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 that once you take carbon tax of people and you equally distribute to the to even a hundred percent of people simply on a per capita basis called carbon dividends it is beneficial to vast majority of low-income families uh, and it's interesting to look at it that way because I think one of the issues here as well has been uh, in BC with the carbon tax and even when it was first introduced to uh, being sold as being revenue neutral. Uh, but I don't think that made people all the more uh, supportive of it because like you said, it's still a tax. It's still something people are paying. It's still penalizing, uh, like you said, that's a good example, low income people who perhaps are purchasing secondhand vehicles or, or on the lower spectrum. And even though it's revenue neutral, that doesn't really work as a great argument to get people to buy into it. Yes, and, and these words like revenue, revenue neutral, these, these thick reports, for most common citizens on day-to-day life, they really are not bothered or they really do not have the interest of going through all this and trying to understand. You need to communicate clearly what is the implication of anything that you're doing for their own family budget. That's why I talk about this X, Y, Z rule. X is the amount that you have to pay extra. Y is, is, is what you are going to get back if, if, in terms of the carbon dividend. And Z is if you conserve, this is, that will be your add-on savings. So, so 
unless the, the biggest challenge is that we have been very defensive about it and in and worldwide just imagine the amount of you know like all these countries who are talking about it is the most engaging climate auditory now we really need the politicians to take decisive action and, and if you think in one uh, data that you are providing is even in the rich industrialized countries more than 50% of the emissions are not taxed so you know and and carbon credit is a very effective way of signaling to the market that they need to move away from dirty fuels to cleaner fuels it signals to consumers to save energy and and if you provide this in the form of carbon dividend it is actually going to help working class families to the extent of of having some kind of income redistribution so in every possible way it can be a win win thing but there but politicians are still hesitant just because they are focusing on the first part the ex part of it which is the carbon tax and so if politicians don't take the lead or come to some kind of consensus and certainly there uh, is a difference depending on which uh, political leader uh, you're listening to if politicians don't do that uh, who could uh, are you right about this about uh, the scientists or who should take the lead yeah you know so what you were saying is that the citizens need to be made aware of this you know so national academies of science all countries they have this national academy of science and we are really taking it as a global perspective not just focus on on bc or alberta but the, but globally the national academies of science they need to tell people see if carbon tax of say 50 dollars or 100 dollars is imposed these are the three numbers that you are going to get x y and z and once citizens are made aware of this then there can be counter pressure on the politicians citizens say hey i'm losing out on my y and z because and these are all working class families then that can hopefully force the politicians to take the issue of climate change seriously yes we are going to continue having these large meetings where people are going to talk they are going to bicker over even the modest um, you know the modest targets that will be who is going to do it how they are going to do it and people are going to go home and we don't have really much time left we just have couple of decades to take some strong significant action or else the damages are going to start showing very soon all right we will leave it there but it's a very interesting piece abhishek i appreciate you so much coming on the show today thank you so much thank you for having me bye bye All right, we are going to talk a little sports and if you are a World Juniors fan, you know that 10 countries will be competing and it all starts on Boxing Day. Let's bring in Rob Williams, who's the Daily Hive sports editor, who knows all about this. Rob, thanks so much for spending some time with us this morning. Yeah, of course. Uh, what's what is it to you that's so appealing about the World Juniors? Yeah, I mean, this is a tournament I think that uh we've I think Canadians have come to come to love and and it's become a holiday tradition and I think the big reason for that is the drama that un- seems to unfold every single year. So, uh it's an under 20 tournament so these are all teenagers, mostly 18, 19 year olds. Um and so they've got a ton of energy, they've got a ton of talent. Uh but they also are prone to perhaps making more mistakes than we're used to from the NHL players. um uh, letting their emotions get the best of them sometimes so that has uh has a way of uh really opening up uh, a hockey game and and you know it's kind of the old adage that uh, a hockey game filled with mistakes is a great hockey game and an exciting hockey game so <laughs> to put it bluntly like that like that that is uh really a a great uh part of this tournament and of course uh when every team when every player puts on uh their respective country's jersey uh there's there's pride at stake as well
And when you talk about the drama, why is there so much drama in these games? Yeah, I mean, like I say, I mean, it's it's it, it, it's single elimination. That's that's part of it. So it's it, there's not a you know it's not a best of seven. There's there's no room for error. Uh, we, we've just seen so many twists and turns that can that can take place. And as I say, it's you know these are teenagers, so um, you know this is the biggest stage that they've ever played on. Uh, it's also a great chance to see the you know the, the future stars of tomorrow. Uh, you know, every great player pretty well that, that's gone in the NHL, you know, had their start in the World Juniors. Uh, you know, the, the, every every single guy you can think of, Gretzky, Lemieux, Crosby, McDavid, they all played for Canada at the World Juniors. And uh, we're going to be seeing some, some of these future stars uh, in Vancouver and Victoria. And how do you think Canada is, is doing going into this? Yeah, they're they're doing well. So they, uh, all of the teams are, are playing pre-tournament games uh, in, the, in this last week in different uh, cities around uh, British Columbia. Uh, Canada's two and zero. They haven't had uh, many stiff tests. They played Switzerland in the first game and they won five three. And for Canada, that's not a great result. They they should uh, have their way with Switzerland a little bit easier than that. Uh, but they looked a lot stronger in their second game, six one against Slovakia. Uh, they don't have. I wouldn't say that this is one of the stronger teams that Canada's put together, but uh, you know they just have the one player that's returning from last year's uh, gold medal winning team. Uh, so it's it's one of these things where they they don't and they don't have that big name guy this year. They don't have the McDavid or the Crosby in, in their lineup. But Canada, when they enter an international competition, is always expected to win gold. And particularly on home ice, I I don't see any reason why that should change this time around. Uh, You wrote uh, in uh, your piece about this uh, as well, you wrote about the player or one player to watch uh, this year is Jack Hughes. Uh, Why are you telling people to watch him? Yeah, so I mean, with the draft, uh, the NHL draft is going to be hosted at Rogers Arena uh, in June, and Jack Hughes is the consensus number one pick. Uh, he, he's going to be the guy getting his name called first, unless uh, somebody really steps up and, and changes that. Uh, Jack Hughes is also the brother of uh, Quinn Hughes. They're both playing for the American team. Quinn Hughes, of course, is the Canucks' first round draft pick in the draft this year. Uh, so he's uh, a draft eligible player uh, for the United States, and he's expected to be uh, probably their top player. So that's um, you know a little bit underaged uh, player that's going to be leading the Americans. The Americans are one of the favorites uh, to challenge for gold this year. Uh, there's going to be a game on uh, New Year's Eve. Is that the Canada Russia? Yeah, that's kind of the centerpiece of the of the preliminary round. Uh, the prelims go from. Uh, December 26th to the to the 31st, and that Canada Russia game is the one that I think everyone has circled on their calendars. Uh, you know, obviously an age old rivalry. That's also likely going to decide who is uh, going to finish first in in Group A, uh, where where Canada and Russia are are the the, the top two teams in, in that group, and and from there it's a single game elimination uh, into the new year with the gold medal game. Uh, on January 5th. All right, I can imagine, uh, I mean, throwing in the fact that it, it's New Year's Eve and that will be the outing for a lot of people on New Year's Eve. That's the energy in that, in uh, Rogers Arena is going to be intense. Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, uh, we've seen some 
some legendary New Year's Eve games as well over the years. Uh, they often get pit, pitted against the uh, the Americans in that game, uh, but with the U.S. In a, in, a, in a different group this time, they've gone with Russia. Uh, for me, I, I know a lot of people in recent years have kind of said that the Americans are kind of Canada's biggest rival. For me, it's still Russia because they're especially at this age. There's a lot more unknowns. We know a lot more about the American team than we do the, the Russian team. Uh, we don't get to see them as often. They don't play. Not as many of them play in uh, in, in college and junior leagues, which which are, are followed a little bit closer. Uh, so that the Russian team, I, I think, is 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 still kind of Canada's biggest rival and. and They've really been able to have some some great uh, some great matchups over the years at the World Juniors. All right, I know a lot of people uh, looking forward to taking in uh, some of the games. Are you going to be going to the games yourself? Yeah, I'm going to be. Uh, I think I'm going to live at Rogers Arena the next couple of weeks. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us to give us a bit of a preview of that. Appreciate it. Of course, thank you. Well, if you are a parent. And you're a little bit stressed out as we are just a couple of days away from Christmas. Fear not, you are not alone. And we have a guest with us now who can walk us through some of the parenting tips when it comes to stress and surviving the holidays. Julie Romanovsky is a coach. She is behind the website misbehavior.ca and she joins us on the line now. Julie, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. What's the number one thing you hear from parents when it comes to stress uh, during the holidays? Uh, lately, the, the trend has been, how do I keep up with it all? Uh. So whether it's high expectations or showing up everywhere on time or having everything perfectly done, how do I do it all? Because it seems impossible. Uh, we, we actually were listening to, to a bit of an interview earlier today about uh, social allergies. And uh, uh. But when you need to, to just unplug and go recharge to it. So how do you how do you walk parents through that? I think the first thing is to to really take some time, take a few minutes, get a clear intention. What is the whole point of whether you are celebrating Christmas or just having a holiday break or Christmas break as they call it? What's the intention? And to be honest, very few people actually take a break. And so it is supposed to be a holiday just like as if we went for one week to Mexico. We wouldn't be rushing around doing all this crazy stuff. We'd be enjoying it. And so it's important to remember that aspect of it. And if we start making decisions from that foundational point, it's going to ease a lot of the stress and the chaos and help us feel good in our decisions that, you know what, I'm going to do this because it's going to make everyone successful and actually allow us to enjoy and have a break. And what about the idea of kind of keeping up? And I would imagine for parents, that's got to be a big one in that you don't want to disappoint your child, but you also don't want your child being a spoiled brat. Right. I think right there, it starts with expectations. If I give a gift and it's a disappointment to my child or to other children that I'm giving gifts to, uh, the expectation there was pretty high. How come it was that way? (laughs) I have zero expectation and I I go for an absolute low standard that no gifts are actually required. We're not supposed to have to give gifts. If you get a gift, that's wonderful, but you don't have to. And that can be really confusing because of the Santa story and traditions and what have you. But be mindful that when there is an expectation, kids are waiting for it. So that's where I would start first. And then the second step is if there's any disappointment, that that is actually okay. 
it's we're not setting our kids up to fail and cry on Christmas, but if there is slight disappointment, it's okay for them to feel that. We we want children to feel these not so great feelings early on in life so that they develop what it feels like and the skills to cope with it so that in teenhood or early adulthood, they've got a grip on what that is and it's not going to be a huge you know, life changer when that happens later on. Uh, but at the same time, I would imagine, say it's Christmas morning or even at a, at a family gathering or at a friend's gathering where there are presents, the last thing you want is for your child to kind of toss the gift aside or, or to start crying mm-hmm. or to be upset about it to, in front of everybody. I would have a chat with them about that and sort of look at that from a social sort of point of view that if you get something... Um, given to you and really highlight what the giving part is, that attitude of gratitude, as I always talk about, and let them know sort of what you're expecting from them when given a gift or sitting down at a big family meal or, you know, going to an event. Um, And let them know what's okay and not okay, what you can and can't do. It's okay to still mention the part about feeling disappointment or sad and upset, but you still have an expectation to be kind, friendly, um, gracious, you know, that type of thing. Uh, What are your thoughts on uh, Elf on the Shelf? (laughs) How much time do you have? (laughs) We only have four minutes. (laughs) Okay. I think he's cute. It's great. It's creative. Wonderful. Whoever came up with that, kudos to you. Great. However, however, no doll or toy or made-up character should be the one in charge of a child's behavior. So that's where I draw the line. So, yes, he can be part of our tradition and our Christmas and our family, yes, but he should be a fun character um, that brings the family together and opens up communication and connection and all that good stuff. But if my child is relying on being good, quote-unquote, because this elf is reporting back to Santa and it's through fear that he may not get gifts because he, you know, slapped his sister or something, that I don't agree with. A parent is in charge of that and fully responsible, and that needs to be made clear. And if you don't know how to deal with that, (laughs) reach out. (laughs) I'll give you a few tips and, and tricks on how to do that. But that's, I'm I'm 50-50 with Elf on the Shelf, depending on how he's uh, brought to life, if you will. Because it is kind of, I mean, he's he's now an agent of Santa, but it has always <laughs> been that around this time of year, parents get yeah. that added bonus of, he's Santa's watching, you better watch out, and you get that for uh, maybe a month leading up to Christmas. It's always been a bit manip- manipulative. Mm-hmm. It, totally. Uh, yeah, it started with Santa way back when, for sure. <laughs> and you get a lump of coal if, that, uh, if you don't behave. I'm not a fan and I don't advocate for fear as being a tactic. It is easy to use. Uh, a lot of people use it. It's been used for centuries. Um, but that is, when children learn that fear is the ultimate rule, they then do that to others. So, no, I don't agree with that. Yes, it is manipulative. Can it be fun and joking? Yeah, use your discretion. Be careful because kids are vulnerable to that. Um, They're not quite 100% sure, especially younger kids, on how the whole system works. Um, Also, it can take away from being being grateful and having gratitude um, and that it's all about me, 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 and the gifts I get, I get, I get, and they're on my Christmas wish list. It takes away from, okay, but how do we give? Back. So Santa's giving, that's great, great demonstration, role modeling, love him, but we also have to counterbalance the 
is me with um, what can I give to others. It's tricky, tricky business at this time of year. Exactly. It can be stressful for sure. Uh, Julie, thank you so much. Uh, Missbehavior.ca is the website and people can read more about this and, and get more advice from you there. But thanks so much for taking some time with us this morning. and Merry Christmas to you. Thank you very much. And Merry Christmas to all of you as well.